Hi there. Welcome to Green Queen in Conversation, a podcast about the food and climate story. I'm Sonali Figueres, your host and the founder and editor-in-chief of Green Queen Media, where I lead all of our food and climate reporting. I'm excited to kick off this new podcast series exploring cultivated meat, a future food technology on a mission to produce animal protein sustainably. For the show's first season, we're talking to the titans of the industry, the OGs, if you will, and asking the hard questions about one of the most exciting food and climate innovations of our time. This next interview is with Dr. Uma Valetti, the founder and CEO of Upside Foods. When we first started to plan this show, we did not realize that during our recordings, the U.S. government would grant the final approval for cultivated meat to be sold, and one of the two companies that was given approval was in fact Upside. The conversation you're going to hear is very personal, full of moments of life-affirming inspiration. It's a must-listen. Upside Foods was the first cultivated meat company in the world. So Uma and the company have played an outsized role in the history of cultivated meat, and there's no telling the story without them. After having chronicled their seven-year journey of building this company, to be able to hear him share his joy and his journey to date and achieve the milestone of watching the first customer at a restaurant eat the chicken that he and his team grew without animal slaughter was so powerful. I'm sure you'll enjoy. Hey, Uma, it's so great to be here with you. Thanks for joining us on How Are You Doing? I'm great to be here. I mean, looking forward to this conversation. Well, it's certainly exciting, exciting times. Lately, I've been calling it the summer of cultivated meat because there have just been so many <laughs> developments. But of course, the most exciting in many ways is, you know, Upside Foods getting U.S. regulatory approval just recently. Um, how did it feel to receive that approval and, and how did you celebrate? Oh, it felt like a dream come true. No question, because this has been in the making for seven years. And you know, less than 10 years ago, this whole field was in the realm of science fiction. And literally nobody in the public sector had heard about it. And now it's out there in the real world where people can go to a restaurant and enjoy cultivated chicken. So I can only say it's like a dream come true, but it's one of many dreams that we have as we bring cultivated meat into the world. So I'd say the, the first part of the dream has been completed and uh, we paused for a minute to celebrate and we're back at it for going after the next part of the dream that we have. So how, how did the team celebrate? Did you all take a bite of cultivated meat? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great way to celebrate because I think tasting is magical and it's absolutely one of the things that every team member comes in and signs up for tasting. But uh, we've done a few things to celebrate. One, obviously, you know, we really celebrated together with the team uh, on the day of uh, approval from the FDA in November 2022 and the USDA approval in June 2023. And then the launch moment was absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. It was on July 1, 2023. And... Uh, we um, you know, had contestants across the US compete to come and do the first ever tasting of cultivated chicken in San Francisco. We flew in all the contestants from everywhere in the world and the US especially. And, uh, uh, and we were there as a team to watch them take their first bite and tell the story of how they felt biting into this magical piece of chicken, which was a lot more than a piece of chicken, but 
uh, just watching somebody else pay a dollar to buy something that the team had been working incredibly hard to bring into the world was uh, was absolutely. It, it was it was a, if there was one place to be on a fly on the wall, that was the place <laughs> to be that day. Uh, it was magical. You were there with the diners. Tell me, tell me about the reactions. Tell me what were people feeling. I was there. I think they felt that they were at a place in the world where there was a sense of history being made. You could, you know, literally touch that sense in the room with whether you're looking at it or whether you're seeing uh, the excitement of them hearing the chefs cook the, the, the chicken and unveil the dish in front of them. You could just literally feel it in the room with every sense that history was being made and this was happening now after thousands of years where we're like, okay, we could bring meat that we love to the table to a process that, can, that we can also fall in love with. And I think that was very clear. And then they were all waiting for the first bite. They were like, what does it really taste like? And I think the reactions, uh, the anticipation, the excitement, the trepidation as they were putting their first piece mm -hmm. into their mouth, that was something to watch. And then they'll bite into it and then there's like a pause. And they're like, they're taking their second bite and then a third bite. And then they're like, you can see like little neurons flashing in their mind. And it led people to start saying, wow, this is amazing. Is this, is this really happening to people having tears in their eyes, to people just, you know, using like the most delightful four letter words said in appreciation. Like, so it was just all of these reactions happening at the same time. And, uh, and then seeing the chef who cooked it and the satisfaction on the chef's face to say, look, I served this experience to you. And, and, and the people, you know, then obviously we are living in the, in, in the world of being surrounded by media. Everybody whipped out their cell phones and starting to take pictures and videos of them tasting, calling in their loved ones and sending it to them. It was, it was just amazing. It was just like, this is food, but it's bringing people together as it's always meant to be. And, and you started seeing all these contestants from different parts of the country starting to become friends and bonding over that meal. So uh, I could not have scripted this better. We did not know how it was going to go. And uh, it was amazing. And these were people you chose at random? Did they, did they have to fill out an application? I mean, did they have a special dietary background or were these omnivores as well as potentially vegan? Yeah, I think uh, we basically announced a contest uh, uh, saying that, tell us why this matters to you. And we basically screened the, the submissions that they had and the team basically said, hey, these are the best submissions we have. And uh, we picked the contestants with the ones that expressed why they're excited about this future for food and, uh, and, and invited them to come over. So there were hardcore meat eaters, omnivores, people who were vegetarian or vegan. So it was just a mix. Incredible. What, what a feeling. <laughs> um, it's, it's, been a, it's been an interesting and kind of long journey to get here. I mean, if you think about, I think, Winston Churchill mentioning the idea 
of growing meat outside of animals so many, you know, over a hundred years ago. And then you have, you know, the Dutch scientist, William Van Allen, who, mm-hmm. who writes about the research. And then 10 years ago, just uh, a few days ago, was when, you know, uh, the Dr. Mark Post showed the world the first, uh, what, he, what was called in vitro burger. And then now here we are with multiple companies with prototypes, hundreds even, and three with regulatory approval, with more potentially coming soon. How how did you end up on this on this path in history in the food world? Because you are at heart a card at heart. You are a cardiologist. <laughs> Is that yeah, right? That's right. Look, I think these are people that have been motivated by an opportunity in the world and. Uh, irrespective of which generation it happened in, it's really great to know that people across multiple generations felt like we can do better, we can bring meat to the table in a way that made ethical sense, environmental sense, economic sense, and people coming from various angles arriving at the same conclusion, I think is just incredible. I mean, I'd say 1932 when Winston Churchill said it, I think he was looking at how to feed a growing population economically. And he saw that, why can't we just grow the parts of a chicken that we really like to eat as opposed to growing the full chicken? And William Van Elen, when he looked at how animals were being raised and he thought about what if we could do this without having the impact on animals. And then when Mark Post did the burger, uh, 10 years ago. He's like, well, let's see if we can do this in a scientific setting. And I think different people at different stages feeling that was fantastic. And, you know, my path was I grew up in India. I grew up in a family that loved eating meat. And I um, went to a birthday party of my friend when I was uh, 12 years old. And uh, at that birthday party, we were celebrating his birthday in the front of the house with fun, music, dancing, and 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 uh, and just like being around with family. And I walked to the back of the house where they were slaughtering the animals to feed the people in the front. And it was an incredible moment in my life where I felt I came face to face with duality of the or the paradox of meat production, where we had this incredibly joyful event in the front celebrating a birthday and that incredibly terrifying and scary event in the back, watching a death day. And both of them were having it happening at the same time. And that moment stuck with me as a kid, and uh, I didn't know what to do with it. I think I just kept thinking about it, but did not do anything, kept eating meat, loved eating meat, still love eating meat, and went to medical school. And during medical school, I came across the same thing again, but in much more of a very large industrialized slaughterhouse where... There was a confined animal feed operation. We went to the slaughterhouse to pick up meat to kind of cook in our cafeteria for the medical students. And that's when I saw the process, which I felt like, oh my gosh, this is intense and really hard to wrap my mind around. And kind of at that point decided that although I loved eating meat, I was going to give it up until I could get behind a better way of uh, producing personally for me. 
I loved eating it still, but I stopped it for like for a moment. And that continued for 20 years after. And then I went to Mayo Clinic to train in cardiology. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. I only wanted to train at the Mayo Clinic and I ended up going there. And uh, during my training, I was exposed to working on stem cells. And uh, later on in my practice in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, I was using those stem cells to inject into patients' hearts to regrow the heart muscle for people that had a heart attack or a cardiac arrest. And given this love for eating meat and the paradox of how it came to the table and what I was doing in medicine and cardiology, like all of these moments kind of came together where I started asking the question, why can't we grow meat from animal cells? And that was the beginning of the idea in my head. And that was in 2005, approximately, yeah, 2005. And yeah, come to think about it, it's almost 18 years ago. And I kept researching it, talking about that with people and saying, hey, this should be done, this should be done, this should be done. And people kept saying it was possible to do and they pointed me to the work done or you know, Winston Churchill quote or at that point, Post uh, had not done the burger yet, but they kept saying, hey, there's NASA research that's happening where they were growing cells from, I think, a fish. Um, and they started pointing to like many of these papers in the, in the, in the, in the literature. So I decided to see if I could encourage people to start companies in the, fa in the space and then join the board of a, a, a group called New Harvest, where the founder of New Harvest named Jason Matheny invited me to join the board. And I thought I could continue to convince people to do more work in the space, but realized very quickly that people were happy to do this as side projects in their laboratories. And, and by the way, that was around the time in 2013 when BBC also did Mark Post's laboratory in Netherlands, and they showed how beef burger could be made. And that was around the time I was working um, or starting to work with New Harvest. But people were just not willing to take the leap and go into the real world. And I felt like if this has been in academia for decades, only, you know, It'll only make meaningful impact if it's in the real world. So after failing to convince a number of researchers to do this in the real world, um, I decided to start a basic science lab myself at the University of Minnesota. And the more work we did in that area, it became very clear it should not be in academia, it should be in the real world. And you know, it became a call to action. My family said, why are you not doing this? And that was a great question to ask. That was a moment of truth for me personally. That's when, when, when my kids asked, Dad, why are you not doing it? You've been talking about it for more than 10 years. When, when was that exactly? That was around 2015. So your kids, 2015. so your family wanted you to do this. And the University of Minnesota, when you started that lab, were they supportive? Yeah, look, I think I had a very supportive chairman of uh, the department who basically said, look, this is an incredible idea. You should keep working on it. And I used, uh, uh, you know, all the work that I've done talking to researchers across the field in this area of growing animal cells. But I was also keeping in mind on cardiology, we were, we were growing cells to re-inject into human hearts. There was an entire body of work that's been happening in medicine, especially in cardiology and what we call regenerative medicine uh, or growing organs. And I was very close and, you know, following that work from the days I was at the Mayo Clinic. 
to continuing in practice and being at the University of Minnesota. So there was already a body of work I'd been following. And uh, um, yeah, once, uh, once there's this incredible support from uh, my wife and kids saying that, Dad, you can, you can go ahead and start doing this. Uh, it just became a lot more freeing and liberating to say, yes, I could go out there myself and do this. And uh, uh, I had a postdoc in my lab who was uh, my co-founder for the company when we first started. We sent a, uh, a proposal to one of the venture capitalists in the Bay Area saying, hey, here's the idea. Would you like to uh, learn more about it? And that was one of those early things that I had done in 2015, just a simple email. And within an hour of sending that email, the, the group from San Francisco uh, was on, a, on, the, on the phone, basically saying, hey, could you move the team to the Bay Area? So that started our journey. I said, okay, let me just do, take a small group there and see if we can do this and, and do a proof of concept. I wasn't planning to quit cardiology at that point. I was thinking I could go back and forth. In fact, I didn't even have a role in the company. I just supported the team that came together. Um, but these were very early days. There was not a single company in the world in this Right, space. you were the first. Right, yeah. There was no one. I mean, there were people doing academic research in the laboratories. You know, Mark Post was doing it in Netherlands. And I think there was uh, a few groups doing adjacent research in the space. Um, but there was no company in the space. There was no one saying we want to make this into a commercial product, go through a regulatory process, start showing that this is an area where investors can kind of come in and if they can wear the long-term view that this would be a transformative industry. None of this existed. Those were very scary days where people literally laughed, laughed me out of the rooms. Okay, because... Say, so, so not everybody, <laughs> not everybody bought the idea. I mean, you had a very supportive family. This, this lab, in, your lab chairman. You had this venture capitalist group that had said yes, but you also encountered some people that thought this was crazy. Yeah, I'd say I could count in a, on, a, on a single hand the number of people who did not think it was crazy. But that was enough. That was enough because those were the people that. I deeply believed and trusted in saying, look, if you start putting one foot in front of the other, if there is a path, we'll find it. But I'd say literally everybody I spoke to said, you have an incredible career in cardiology. You're head of many programs and you're on the boards of the National Cardiac Societies and you are doing medical device innovation and started companies in that space. You are just crazy to give that up and walk away from it. And that was nearly everybody that knew me. But on the other side, the reality in the real world was, well, not everybody knows about my work in cardiology, but they were just looking at it objectively as an industry and said, there is nothing there. I've never heard about growing meat from animal cells. No one has ever invested in this. There's never been a company in this space. There is no regulatory pathway or approval. Everybody is going to fight you because no one would want you to come up and compete with what exists on the market already. So literally, we got laughed out of room saying that, guys, this is, this is a pipe dream. This should live in maybe laboratories as a side project. So that, those were the early days. Let me ask you a question. In those early days, because the way you've, you've explained your story, 
it feels very much that for you, there was this kind of ethical element, right? Of watching at when you're a 12 year old, you see how the animal is slaughtered. And then eventually you end up in a CAFO situation, seeing industrial meat agriculture up close. Um, was there any inkling at this point or, or thinking from your side around the climate side of things, the environment side of things? Yeah, very, very good question. The initial uh, motivation for me was definitely ethical. I, my, my dad's a veterinarian. I grew up around animals. We come from a farming family. We had animals, we had cows. I used to milk cows and all our family members, there's a lot of uh, my family that still lives in, in, in villages that are farming their land, right? So that's, that's, where, that's where I come from. That's in India. That's in India, yes. And the, my initial exposure to this birthday, death day experience when I was 12 years old, and then later on when I was 17 or 18 in medical school, seeing intense confined animal feed operations and the, the mechanized slaughterhouse, that's when I said, okay, look, I love eating meat, but I'm going to have to kind of pause. And I hit the pause button thinking, okay, not thinking too much at that point. But that pause button continued for 20 years. But in those 20 years, then I, my life's dream was to become a cardiologist trained at the Mayo Clinic. Not easy to get there, but I eventually ended up getting there and did training. And during that training, I started doing a lot of scientific work and learning about, you know, in medical school, you learn about cell biology, biochemistry, molecular biology, and then you start applying that in, in, in medicine and then in cardiology, we were doing the cutting edge research on stem cells. So the science and technology started coming together, and I think that initial ethical inclination helped us form the idea. But then I started exploring and seeing, is this actually going to make business sense? Because by then I was starting to uh, you know, develop medical devices and start being parts of innovations in you know, medicine and cardiology, and I understood start, the startup world. I was investing in the startup world myself. And I said, let me explore if there's an opportunity. That is when I, le I learned about the, the incredible environmental footprint of raising animals to feed humans. I did not know about that growing up. So then when I started looking at the environmental impact, that just blew me completely out of the water, saying that, oh my gosh, we are raising 70 billion animals to feed 7 billion humans right now. So that's 10 animals per human every year. And that's going to become... 15 animals for each human in the next 30 years. That is doubling the demand for meat. There's just no room for any of this. Like that is, that became very like a stark in front of me. There is no matter what we dream up, we're not going to be able to have that many animals to feed that much, you know, meat to humans. So that it felt like, oh, there's a significant environmental need, but there's also a business need. And because Minneapolis is back, you know, it's, it's a place where Cargill and Hormel and a lot of major food companies are. I started talking to execs in these companies. And, and you know, they, they saw this coming as well. So it helped to be then in medicine to look at the impact of meat on, on health, impact on meat on, uh, you know, so in general, you know, a lot of food and diets that we have. It's very clear that meat's a very nutritious product. It's it's. It's got lots of, um, you know, protein. It has a lot of 
you know, fats. It has a lot of things that are good for human development, but there's also the downside of being associated with cancers and cardiovascular disease and a lot of other things. But I realize we are also confined by an animal to make improvements in making meat better because it would take about six to seven years to breed a single trait in an animal to make some feature or some trait better. But that was a long, that, that, that's a long time for every single trait to do. And there just, there just was not going to be much more than what we have right now because the animals we use are highly selected and highly selectively bred. For instance, check the chickens we eat now. They're three to four times heavier than the chickens we used to eat 40 years mm -hmm. ago. That's through selective breeding. And I, and I felt like if we have an opportunity to make health better and explore the opportunities to improve the, the, the features of meat, improve the environmental footprint, and also improve the ethical cost of bringing meat to the table, I thought that'll be a triple threat. And that's what really led to the, the, the exploration of writing to the VC. So it came in stages as you learned more and as you explored more. That's interesting. Um, That's a good insight because it, yeah, absolutely right. It started with one thing, but I start, as I started exploring, it became very clear that the trends in which that we were going, looking at the next hundred years or beyond, all of these trends are pointing towards improving an ethical uh, footprint, environmental footprint, making it more efficient as production and being more available to more people and opening up the opportunity to make meat better and healthier. It, the more I dug in, the more it became clear that this is something that should be in the world. And it came in phases. Um, I want to go back to what you said about being in Minnesota and around companies like Tyson and Hormel. You approached some of these execs and they, you're saying that they saw they saw what was coming in the sense of this, this kind of stress on the food supply to give people more protein, but with limited land and water and, and et cetera, other and feed. Did they, see, did they see the potential of what you were doing? Yes. Yeah, so in Minnesota, we have not Tyson, but Cargill Sorry, and Hormel yeah. and, and General Mills. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of really iconic food companies that come from the upper Midwest. And there's a number of execs who spend their careers there and people that have retired from there and people that have families in there. So it's a very rich community. And no matter who we spoke to, it was very clear that the, these very large companies that have grown over 50, 100, 150 years were in the business of supplying food to people, protein to people. They were recognizing the enormous challenges in feeding people what they want as we kept getting um, more and more advanced and as we kept uh, you know, increasing the GDPs across the world, that the first thing people bought when they had some disposable money was to buy meat for their families, for their kids, because it was very clear to them that meat was very nourishing to the family. So, they used to talk about, look, when somebody had an extra dollar to spend, whether it's in India or Indonesia or in China, that person is going and buying meat for their family. And in order to produce it, it requires an incredible amount of complexity to be orchestrated. And, you know, a part of that solution was industrialization of agriculture into confined animal feed operations. Those were built by necessity 
because the demand on the consumer side was so high and, and these companies were trying to meet those demands. And it became very clear that, look, there is a significant demand that's building and then there's the supply side where people were trying to figure out how to be most efficient. And, and that's kind of where you know, this opportunity creeps up. Like, of course, we don't want to take the choice of eating the food that people love to eat, but nearly everybody was like feeling sorry about the process, but there wasn't a better solution. One, you know, maybe a potential solution or partial solution is everybody starts using plants to make plant-based meat alternatives. Right, which was already happening as you were growing the company, right? It was because Beyond and Impossible and Gardein and Beyond Burger and Boca Burgers and, you know, there's a lot of brands that have been doing plant-based uh, uh, proteins for decades. Um, so we, I, I looked at it and, in, you know, in fact, started thinking about starting a plant-based company to make something really, like, delicious and tasty in 2009, 2010. But when I looked at and seeing how many people were doing it, I'm like, look, there is no need. There's really great entrepreneurs and existing food companies already doing fantastic work on it. So there is no need. The thing that kept coming back to me and I kept getting bugged by was the possibility that we could make meat from real animal cells without having to raise animals. That if nobody was pushing that possibility and exploring it, that would always remain unexplored. And then we set up this world where you are either ignoring the perils of continuing to produce meat at the large, large scale as we are and keep doing it, or we ration it, or we decrease it, or we mandate people cannot have it or take it away, or force everybody to become vegetarian or vegan. I just did not think that was a world that was realistic, and I didn't want to not explore this other set of you know, trying to pop this balloon. And I thought cultivated meat should live in the world. And it, that's kind of where it started as a tiny, tiny dot of an idea. And the more we talked about it, the more we started showing proof of concept and actually growing these products and having people taste it. It's increasingly becoming a magical moment where people, when they taste it, they understand what the taste of meat is. They're just completely blown away. And then when we invite them to tour our facility and have them see how meat is made, that is another magical experience. It's for the simple reason that, look, I haven't met anyone who's walked out of a slaughterhouse without being scarred for the rest of their life. But when they walk out of a production facility that is producing cultivated meat, when they come and see the facility that we have, they get inspired, they get motivated, and they start thinking about, hey, what are the possibilities? If this continues to grow, and if this continues to become more and more efficient and cost-effective, living in neighborhoods, growing meat in the neighborhoods that is local, that's regional, it offers an imagination and, and, and a vision that's very powerful. And it, they leave inspired. And then the third thing we noticed is a really magical moment is when they talk to the people on the team that are actually doing this work. They, re they realize that there are just people like, like them. Very driven, purposeful, meaningful commitment of their time into a much needed solution for a problem that 
never had a solution like this before. And they've all left really important, meaningful careers to be here. And they see that purpose and drive in that team and they feel like, yes, this is something to get excited about. And now that we are seven years into it, there's also a track record of having done things that nearly everybody said is impossible to do or unachievable, that this team has done those. And that also gives the team a bit more of confidence to say, hey, look, remember when we climbed that hill and nobody believed in us? Now we've climbed seven of those, and we know there's another 10, 20, 30 ahead, but we're ready for this. And when they see that level of optimism and also grit, as well as real-world experience of having done these things that nearly everybody said was impossible, it just creates, creates an environment that I think is a must-have for a very early field like ours. Yeah, that must, it, it must feel amazing to do things that everyone thought were impossible. I want, I want to ask you, though, why chicken of all the meats? I mean, there, there are discussions around chicken obviously being one of the most affordable animal meats. Um, so in terms of reaching something like price parity, and mass market, it is one of the maybe more challenging options. What made what yeah. made you choose chicken? Um, well, I think a couple of things. One is chicken is the most consumed meat in the United States and soon to be across the world, which means that it's very relatable. People know how to cook chicken, understand how it tastes. And it is something that is an easy thing to um, get behind because you know how to cook it in no matter what ethnicity you are, which part of the country you are, which part of the world you are. So we wanted to kind of signify the importance of this innovation at that level. Um, we took a pur purposefully a different approach than maybe some other companies are uh, could very legitimately take and say, hey, we want to put a product that is very rare, very exquisite. Most people have never tasted it and only aspire to taste it, and we'll start from there in a, in a very small market segment. And we took the approach of, look, we are already doing something that is not familiar to people, not something that they have been thinking about, and it is so much more important for people to recognize the familiarity of it, the comfort of it, and understand the why behind it, rather than saying, we will go and put, I don't know, pick any type of exquisite type of cut of meat of our species or something that is just not scalable, does not have a very big market, but you can capture a tiny, tiny slice of a very small created market. Um, we chose the latter for one reason, is familiarity. The second one is also just as important because as we come into the market, let's say the, the difference between the best quality organic chicken could be priced at something like 10 to $15 a pound if you go to like a, a, you know, a good uh, retail store. Um, and maybe like a really high-end, some other cut of some other species could be $50 a pound or $80 a pound, for instance. What we felt was in the initial days of upside coming to market with our chicken, we're making quantities that will be sold out no matter 
where the price of this is going to be put. So let's say if the best chicken on the market is 10 to $15 a pound, and we chose to price it 30% premium on that or 50% premium on that, we still knew that we could not catch up and supply the demand that was there for chicken that was more expensive than the, the organic chicken. So we felt like that's what our target is. We're going to go after it. We're going to make it very familiar to people. In the early days, as the price comes down and we get down to parity with conventional, we're going to accept that we're going to have a premium on top of you know, what a conventional chicken might cost. And we just said we're going to accept these two things. And that with time as we get to scale, we know inevitably that we, we are going to get to parity with conventional meat and eventually better than that. I think that's going to happen for two reasons again. One is we're going to keep getting more and more efficient, better and better at our production as we scale, and nearly all trends are in favor of supporting our production process. And the price of conventional meat is going to continue to keep going higher and higher with time because of the amount of external costs and you know, the direct costs and the, and the subsidies and the incentives and all of those things that are needed to support that price to a consumer, it's going to get unbearable at some point. We felt like as that keeps going up, our price is going to keep coming down and there's a sweet spot in which cultivated meat eventually is going to be at parity with conventional and eventually better. And that's why we, cho we chose chicken. And that actually has played out really well because when people come and taste it, they immediately can relate it to another piece of chicken they've tasted. When do you see that parity happening, at least on a production level, even if you were to still have that added uh, premium that you add on? Yeah, look, I think there's many products you can do, whether it's with chicken or beef. And, and by the way, our second product is beef. And we have a number of other luxury products that are coming around to surround the, the, the offering. But we think that generally price parity is going to happen in the next five to 15 years. Okay. And that's the range because in that range, if there is a higher involvement of public-private partnerships and the government start recognizing the opportunity and the potential here and do similar things to what they've done with other transformative industries, whether it's energy transformation or electrification of automobiles, uh, these are semiconductor fabrication units being set up. And these are the kinds of things that if they can also recognize the opportunity here and accelerate that, help create regulatory environments that are favorable, help create a level playing field with existing incumbents that have enormous advantages that, have, that they've built over time, whether it's efficiencies or trying to, trying to improve you know, the education of their consumers. Or thirty-eight. If we have offered thirty-eight billion dollars in subsidies, <laughs> you know, yeah, of course, some 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 uh, industries are very lucky to have that. So, if we are given at least some type of that support, I think it'll be closer to the five to fifteen range. If, in the absence of it, if the in industry has to go by it alone and compete on its alone, I think it's going to be you know towards the later side of it. But the, the opportunity cost is huge. If, industry, if, if the public-private partnerships and the governments don't recognize it, in that same time period, they will have to keep in bearing the external, externalities of the cost of 
intense animal agriculture, bringing meat to the table, um, or having to deal with supply chain disruptions. And we're just coming out of that with, with COVID, not, not even counting the increased, enormously increased risks that we potentially face with zoonotic diseases in confined animal operations. Uh, and I think we're not even building an opportunity to build a hedge into that, because if you have cultivated meat along with conventional meat, it's an and solution. We're not saying that cultivated meat is the only way to feed. We're very clear in saying cultivated meat is an and solution. It offers diversification of our um, food production sources. It offers improvement of our supply chain resiliency, and it protects the ability to keep the choice of eating animal-based meat on the table. And with time, over the next several decades, there'll be enormous amounts of innovations that can be set up on top of it to be able to improve health, make it more regional, make it more regional, and also help countries develop production facilities of their own because at scale, cultivated meat is projected to have a significantly better environmental footprint with lower use of resources, lower use of water, significantly lower emissions of, of greenhouse gas, gas emissions. And parts of the world that just cannot grow meat right now because they don't have enough water or resources can start thinking about what does it mean if they have cultivated meat production facilities in their region? They may have enough water for it. They may have enough um, inputs that they can actually you know, have locally sourced for it. So it creates a local economy. So I think these are all things that uh, that get us excited. So in that five to 15 year time frame, where you feel with or without support, depending, you would achieve a sort of a price parity. Does that, is that kind of a similar timeline for you in terms of the this, this kind of benchmark of getting cultivated meat to be a mass product, to be on shelves in supermarkets? Do you put those at the same thing or? Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of meat that's being produced, right? Right. A very good analogy for this is we started getting behind electric vehicles about 20 years ago, approximately. And people started saying they'll start buying them. And, you know, the largest company in that space, Tesla, went public in 2008 and, you know, turned their first profitable quarter about 10 years later, and they basically led the charge in converting all existing manufacturers to become believers in electrification of transportation so that they're starting to invest more and more in it and make pledges by 2025 or 2035, they'll all become um, predominantly electric vehicle manufacturing uh, entities. I'd like us to have the same impact on cultivated meat like ultimately, we want to be able to have a lot of people in the ecosystem to be producing cultivated meat, new players, existing people to say, hey, I see an opportunity here. A portion of my business can be this. And they can still keep the existing business because for the one simple reason, the demand for meat is doubling. That means we've got to fill the delta with production modalities. And if existing and new players start thinking about that delta, that is very large. That's a one plus trillion dollar market every year, not even counting the one and a half trillion market right now. So in that space, I think a lot of people can live and coexist and collaborate and do really, really well economically, as well as for all the other reasons we've talked about. And that's really 
the movement that we want to kind of be the nucleus of and, and, and agitate. First seven years have been successful. We've been able to kind of lead and pioneer and help create the environments where there's about 150 companies in the space across the world in every major meat producing or consuming country. We've got every major food and ag university uh, in the country, in the U.S., and mostly across the world, have started offering cultivated meat in their undergrad and also postgrad courses and also offering PhDs. The major governments, more than 10 governments in the country, in the world right now, starting from the United States, Canada, and UK, and Australia, China, India, have, Israel's, have started offering research grants for academia in this, in this space. California became the first state in America to offer research grants directly to the UC systems. National Science Foundation and USDA started offering grants to local universities. And we are behind supporting all of those applications with those primary investigators and also the legislatures in, in the state and uh, in the federal level. So those are granted. So we're helping on the commercial side, helping companies you know, be formed and advising them and collaborating with them. We're working with academia to help structure their programs and teaching programs and do internships and offer jobs for their graduates. We're working with the governments to create funding and offer research funding to academia. We are working with, you know, media to educate people. This is an example. We are talking to you to so we can tell the story of cultivated meat. It is in its early stages, but it's making incredible amount of pro progress to be able to say we could be at the table and also participate in feeding the world and preserve the choice of eating what we love. Yeah. I, I hear you on all those things. I mean, there's, we're, we're getting close to time. There are three questions I really want to explore with you before we go. Okay. One is around government. Um, it's super interesting to hear that behind the scenes, you're working with the government in so many different ways and supporting newcomers. That's, that's really exciting. Um, and, and, and good, you know, good to hear because obviously we also hear a lot about the competition, which, you know, rising tide and all that. But I wanna, mm -hmm. I wanna ask you about the government. I mean, how supportive do you feel the governments in the U.S. and beyond have been? And, you know, what did you expect? Did you, did you think it was gonna be this kind of support? Did you expect more? Did you think there was gonna be more public funding? And, and interestingly, unlike some of your peers, you did not go to, for example, Singapore, where there was more regulatory mm -hmm. support and some funding support. So I, I want you to talk a little bit about that. Look, at the top of it, it's a great question. I want to acknowledge that um, there could always be more. And we have a wish list that it would be incredibly um, exciting to have funding set aside for cultivated meat already in amounts that are meaningful enough to move the needle. There's a wish list. But having said that, we are a U.S.-based company. We've always been laser-focused on working with the U.S. regulators, FDA and the USDA, and working with them closely from the earliest stages of building the industry so they understand the work, the science, the technology, the products with us and help us develop those regulations. And I could not be more happy or grateful that both the agencies have engaged with us over many years 
and helped us build and bring this product with really great regulatory guidance, very thoughtful, focused on safety, and also focused on um, and educating the consumer so that they are clearly understanding what is coming to the plate. So I'd say the U.S. regulators have been incredibly supportive and incredibly rigorous in helping us think through these things. Now, this was a very bold move for us to make and say we are not going to go anywhere outside of the U.S. because there are other jurisdictions that we could have gone to. But again, we decided on principle to make a call that we are a U.S.-based company. We want to work with the U.S.-based regulators who are held up as the uh, the, the most um, important and prominent and credible food regulators um, across the world with deep experience in science as well as food. So that was the choice we made, and I'm very glad that it paid off because our team is small still. We couldn't be distracted doing multiple jurisdictions at the same time. And, and you know, while we're happy that Singapore and you know, other jurisdictions uh, are also excited about this, our plan was we're going to stay laser-focused on the U.S., and, I, and, and it is the plan for us even for the foreseeable future. But it's opened the pathway for almost every company in the world. They can come and apply in the United States. It could be the place where innovation can move faster. We would, though, want to have governments more involved in funding this mm -hmm. because there is a manufacturing challenge. Building cultivated meat production facilities is not cheap. It is expensive because a lot of things have to come together under one roof. In the initial stages, it is expensive, but having governments come in with the funding to, or loans or some type of uh, grants would be incredibly helpful and accelerant to the industry. And we are advocating for that. And we hope that similar to energy transition and electrification of transportation, we may be able to also get uh, some support from the government. Yeah. I mean, notably the IRA reg reg regulation did not carve out that much around food and, and you know, food tech. Would you, would you agree with that? Well, we are, we are exploring it, but I'd say we have to start somewhere. And keep in mind, this field is growing rapidly. And we have to have enough production data to show that this is now ripe for commercial manufacturing. Okay. We believe we are very close to that because as at Upside, we actually have a production facility that we, we've been operating on a regular basis for the last year. We built it through the pandemic. It's something that we have a lot of data on that we're working on sharing and starting to show that this is the time that's ripe now to start mm -hmm. building the next larger scale facility that becomes industrial scale. That's a must have. That's a threshold we have to cross. And I feel like industries that actually need government support are exactly at that stage because that's, that's a very difficult stage because you can't keep raising private capital to do that leap, you'll need to have some amount of private capital, some amount of loans, and some amount of government support to be able to say, yes, now we are forming an industry. And that is literally why these programs are set up. So we're going to keep exploring how we can do this transition and, and set up manufacturing help, not just for us, but also for everybody in the ecosystem. Absolutely. That's, that's interesting. Um, 
My second big question is around this idea. So a lot of folks in our industry make this analogy with electrification of vehicles, right? This idea that, mm -hmm. um, you know, cultivated meat and, and overall various forms of alternative protein is following the same trajectory as, you know, electric vehicles. And so we're, so we're earlier on in the process, but that's really the journey ahead. Um, and I, I want to I want to push back a little bit on that, just because cars are not food, and food is mm -hmm. just such a different uh, product for the average person. There's tradition. There's you know your grandmother's chicken soup. There's your identity, or you know as a as a nation, as a you know as a as a family, and the backlash to cultivated meat and, and just new forms of producing food has been, you know, quite extreme in some ways. There, it's become a bit of a culture war. You know, the, the term lab grown is thrown around by the media as a bit of a, a, you know, a, a way to kind of get people excited and, you know, not always in a good way. How, how do you look at at this idea of consumer acceptance and how do you think the industry should be thinking about it? I mean, is this something that you worry about or do you see that as, you know, a distraction that's not that important? Uh, look, I, I, I understand all of this. I understand the pushback and uh, I appreciate it. And I think a field like ours that is in its early days of infancy moving to becoming a toddler now, requires a lot of nurturing and support and continuous focus towards the North Star. And we do have to accept that constructive criticism is par for the course. And it is okay to have skeptics that will say, you know, it's not going to scale, it's not going to be analogous to this industry or that industry, and food is very different than everything else. All that is fair and par for the course. As long as it's coming in the form of constructive criticism for innovators that are in the arena doing this work every single day, looking for that little tiny crack of opportunity to cross that, you know, the, cross the hill or the challenge that people said you could never do. And I think that's all fair. I think where the culture wars have gone are distinctly um, distracting. They are uh, taking a, a monster head of their own because it suddenly becomes a talking head of somebody wanting to prove their point absolutely is the only point of view and driving that to the ground and while they do that to take everybody down with them. And I think it's sad to see that. Uh, but what I keep telling ourselves and our team is, look, we have a North Star we're pointing towards. Our goal is to keep working on making our favorite food a force for good. It's not going to be easy. If it was, lots of people would have done it. And real transformative change will take time. And while we do that, let's engage in constructive criticism. If we have people coming with the intent of literally proving their point or getting an award for I don't know, it could be a journalistic award, it could be some other award, but they're actually not presenting all of the facts and not interested in knowing except their point of view. I'm like, let's, 
let's do what we can, but let's not spend too much time on that because we are not going to change our minds. We have work to do. So that's literally the, the, the direction we are taking because, look, as we come more and more into the commercial, there will be lots of people who will be writing articles against us. And if I step back, that's happened historic, in history for nearly every transformative thing that we take for granted right now. And it happened with electric cars, right? Imagine the very early days of electric, electrification of transportation. And you know, I'll address this, this pushback you had. Food and cars are different, of course, but there's a lot of similarities. We trust in both. We put our families in both. We literally have all our living experiences with both of them being part of our lives. And if we let's look at electric cars right now, when they first came out, the very, very early versions, they, were, they had a very short range. They were blowing up in garages, catching fire, and there was a safety risk so many times over that period. And there were people that have written the epitaph of that and saying this is never going to work, never going to scale. But look what happened. People figured out how to decrease those things from happening, minimize those things, and increase range. And if I step back and offer the same thing, cultivated meat is offering a method to continue to eat meat without giving that, that choice. And we can't be everything for everyone all at once. And therefore, we are focusing on what we can do really well to start with. We'll put a product that we, we think is safe, delicious, went through the full force of regulatory uh, review, and then we'll put the next product out and the next product out and the next product out. And guess what? They're going to continue to imp improve with every iteration. But what they're going to show is this incredible opportunity that should be on the table and people should be aware of. And we have to do a really good job educating. But when we take a fall, we also have to just get up and say, hey, look, that's something we're going to fix. And we get up and fix it and keep moving forward. And I think that's how I see cultivated meat progressing because we've got to be at the table to put great products. And when the products don't you know, meet what the consumer is looking for, fix it to make it better. And I think those are the analogies you know, where I think it's very similar to electrification of transportation and also for cultivated meat. Let me know if that addresses <laughs> no, I, what you're I, saying. There's, I, I could keep going. There's a lot of analogies between these and their differences. But we put our, like I said, our families, we, we feed our food to our families. And we put our families in these things and drive, right? That means we, we, we are, we're trusting these modes. And that's, that's what we have to develop. And we have to continue to do a really good job educating people. And let's not take status quo for granted. That's the third part. If we take status quo for granted, we know absolutely that the probabilities of us ending in an environmental disaster, rationing, economic disaster, are very, very high. We already have an ethical disaster, so we don't need to prove any more of that. And here's this technology that can be very supportive in helping us transition gradually into better modes of production. Just because there are hurdles in the way or bumps in the way should not stop us. If you look at the horizon of time and you know what every major industry has had to go through, I'd say cultivated meat is not any different. Yeah, absolutely. So last question. Um, 
you've mentioned that, you know, it would be great if the government would focus a little bit more on funding opportunities. You've talked about ecosystem support and this idea of like mm -hmm. public private collaborations and just general partnerships um, to, to progress. What's really needed in order for this industry and, and upside to get to scale? Because that, that, I mean, is it more bioreactors? Is the issue the medium and the feed? Mm. I mean, what's what's standing in your way if you had the money? I don't think there's anything standing in our way. I believe this is something that requires us building on the foundation and keep building it and keep getting in front of people and having people experience those three magical things I've talked about. We got to get people to taste it. In order to get more people to taste it, we have to build cultivation uh, production facilities. We have, to bring, we have to build a lot of them. In order to build a lot of them, we'll need funding and we'll need time to build them. And I said the second magical moment is when they come and tour these things. When people, let's say in, in, in Virginia or in, in Houston or Seattle, have a production facility that can go and walk through and imagine their kindergarten kids or middle schoolers or high schoolers walking through and seeing how meat is made, that opens up their mind. And then the last thing, when they meet these people that are making it, they're like, they're just like you go and meet, meet your vegetable producer or your farmer, they're going to come and meet their, uh, the, the person who is producing cultivated meat. It's a type of farmer. When they develop those relationships, those close relationships, they become a must-have, and for that you you need both funding and you need time, and you need to be realistic and say these are going to go in phases. We are delighted that it took us seven years to go from science fiction to reality, from an idea to industry. But what we did on July 1st, 2003 is simply the opening bell, right? We rang the bell saying, hey, we are out here on the market. And now we have to get ready for this next phase of the journey, which is going from the first sale of cultivated meat in the United States to formidable scale, which means starting to build production facilities that offer a blueprint for people to want these in their zip codes, invest in them, create jobs with these things. That means our goal is very, very straightforward. It sounds simple, but we have to build the most efficient production infrastructure that brings sustainable production to the table while also offering an economic advantage compared to conventional production techniques. And I think that's a process that's going to keep getting better and better and better with time because the, the methods of production we are using will keep getting better and better as adjacent fields of renewable energy get stronger, as fields that uh, you know, improve you know, fluid handling or robotics or you know, rapid assays that we can do in the meat before we release meat into the market keep getting better because you can't do all of that with conventional meat. So the, all these trends are in our favor. So we need time, we need funding, we need to be able to keep proving to people that we are worthy of a seat at the table and all of these things are ahead of us and that's that's what i'm most excited about
That's really exciting. Well, thank you so much, Uma. This has been such a wonderful conversation. There's so much to learn here. Um, I really appreciate your time and your openness. Thank you, Sonali. I think this has been one of my most relaxing conversations. Obviously, you're asking good questions and pushing back, but it's also someone, you, you, you've spent a lot of time in this field. You've talked to a lot of people in the field and people that are critiques in the field, and you experienced uh, and are probably are seeing the culture wars that are coming around it. And I really appreciate you asking all those questions because while all of those things are happening, it is our job to be laser focused on the North Star and saying that all of these hurdles are par for the course. It requires a set of relentlessly committed people, leaders and team members come together to make things like this happen. Because we've never said it was going to be easy, but we know that it's completely worth it to go after an idea like this and none of us should regret 20, 30 years looking back saying that, oh my gosh, we wish we started this in 2015 or 2020 and didn't wait till 2050. So I think, I think that's really, you know, those are the kinds of horizons we are thinking of. And I appreciate you taking interest in this field. Thank you, Uma. Well, the whole point of this series, when I, when I told Joanna, my producer, that I wanted to do it, I, it, I didn't know that the USDA was gonna give approval in, in June. Um, I, I, had a, I thought it would, I actually thought there'd be a bit of more of a delay between FDA and USDA. I was thinking maybe end of the year, but I, I felt oh, that yeah. we were on the cusp of this just major, as you say, this, this, this moment in history. And as someone who's been, you know, reporting on this for you know, six, seven years, I'm also very aware of how misunderstood the industry is and just how how people are, are making all kinds of ideas about it because they haven't been to Upside's production facility and they haven't tasted that piece of chicken in their mouth. And so the yes. idea here was to talk to the, the six pioneers in the space and really humanize the story and, and just have this open conversation. So this is really aimed at not the industry. This is really aimed at, you know, even someone like Joanna, my producer, who who didn't know much about cultivated meat when we started talking mm -hmm. and is now, you know, so fascinated because how can you not be when, when you listen to these stories and this is history being made and people need more stories. They need more information. I think all of us have this, this professional side of the, of the challenges and the hurdles and the, and the things we've had to put up with. And we also have the personal side, our families supporting us you know, without asking any questions, you know, and lots of sacrifices in the families. And, you know, we, you know, if you think about this, this is the part, I don't know if it's coming to your conversation, but we've been around for seven years. Half of our lifetime has been during COVID. Mm. And despite those challenges and the curveball of COVID, we never anticipated We've been able to move this idea from science fiction to reality, from an idea to an industry, being able to build an entire production facility from the ground up and get to market and bring along an entire ecosystem of all the things that have been formed around this idea in the last seven years. 
there isn't that many examples where industries have been through this kind of rapid growth interest simultaneously while the idea was being developed into a product, while funding was being secured, while academic programs and training programs were being developed, while regulators were learning and trying to get guidance issued, at the same time as media of all walks from all walks of life getting so interested in covering it from very different angles, at the same time as being pushed back from many groups of entities or people that do not want us to exist. This kind of milieu of events has just happened very rarely. And I can't think of the last time it happened in food, but in general, it happens very rarely. And that's the kind of moment that we're in. And I would, you know, obviously we are living it and it feels like, mm. oh my gosh, like, is this ever going to get better? But I think these are the moments of innovation that have to come together. And there is no precedent or there is no blueprint. And I think this is why it's important to keep saying, look, none of us have the full knowledge or the full truth. But we all have seen that there is a problem here that needs to be solved. And this has never been attempted before. Um, and it should coexist along with the way conventional meat is being produced, the way plant-based alternatives are coming up, and the way that we can protect choice of eating meat from animals at the same time as preserving a lot of things we, we, we care about in the world. I think these should, these should coexist and not to be set up as competitive entities. And I think that's the message I hope people covering this field and writing about it, you know, keep in mind, even if they're critiquing the field or skeptical, so it becomes a more constructive endeavor versus, you know, some of the, the destructive things that we are seeing. Like, and there's a personal story to these entrepreneurs and the teams that are behind it who are actually in the arena toiling, struggling, sacrificing every single day. Taking a shot. And taking a shot. They are taking a shot. They're taking the world, a shot. And that... That's, that's the story that I want to tell. And, and, yeah, and, look, and we've, I, we've lost a lot on this. Yeah, but I think a lot of the storytelling is maybe too much on the tech and not enough on that human story. You know, and I look, I really hope you explore both because I mean, there is course, a human story for of all course. of us, right? So that's why yes, for yeah. me, these interviews in this series has been much more about the human story. Right. I mean, I can have no. another discussion with you about, oh, and this medium and FBS serum and and tell me about yes. bioreactors and the size of, of the production facility. But what I wanted to do is is tell the story of the person, because there are you are all these incredible people, humans taking a shot and, and everybody can empathize and and be interested in that, which is someone taking a shot to, to make the world better. Who knows? We don't Absolutely. know where it's going, but we're taking the shot, right? Absolutely. So, well, and congratulations, thank you. huge, huge congratulations. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I gotta say my favorite part of this interview is when you told me that your family told you that you should be doing this, that I think is so powerful. Um, I usually <laughs> hear the opposite, which is people saying, oh, my family was like, what are you doing? Like, this is so, 
crazy, but the fact that your kids said to you, dad, you should be doing this, that's really kind of amazing. Look, it's one of my favorite parts of the stalls experience because you know, I went into my son's room and he was eight years old. After I told him a story about, you know, you know, how we were doing research and there there were animals being used in that and you become really friendly with these animals and then then you take them and there is a terminal experiment that is done. And then we started talking about meat production just a couple of days before. And I went to his room and he was just sobbing by himself. And then he asked me the question, why does this have to happen? Wow. And, you know, I didn't have an answer, right? So I, I saw him sobbing. I just held him and I said, look, I felt the same way as you did. And I told him the story when I was 12. And he said, why can't it change? You know, that was my son when he was eight. And, and then, you know, after that, I kept going back to cardiology, doing my thing, but I never forgot that moment. And then when this, I, you know, when my wife and I were discussing this and the kid said, Dad, why are you not doing it? That was another big, you know, profound moment in the family to say, look, all this, I've been asking others to start companies in this space. I'm trying to pick my safe path of, hey, I'm a cardiologist now. I have a well-established path. I have this research. I have this company. I've got a job. I'm not risking that and asking other people to do it. And they had to put a mirror to me and said, why are you not doing it? And that became a call to action. And the fun side of this was when we were moving to California, uh, my daughter didn't want to move. You know, that was the time around this the movie called Inside Out. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a Disney movie, that, or Pixar movie that came out where the sto same story of what was unfolding in our family was actually playing in a movie in front of us where a entrepreneur dad from Minnesota was moving his entire family to San Francisco and his daughter was 11 years old and she was fighting the move because all her friends were in Minnesota and that's exactly what my, my daughter was going through. She was like, I don't want to move. You commute, you go there. I'm not moving. And then when she saw all of this, she said, <laughs> she, she agreed. And she said, okay, I don't like, but I'm coming. But you have to promise that you'll get me fried chicken for my high school graduation. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a funny story, right? I'm like, well, I made that promise to her. I had no idea if we would be able to produce anything at all. But that's what she wanted, fried chicken for graduation. This was back in 2017. And how old and, is she now? Well, she just graduated high school this summer, so July 1st, 2003, 2023. The same day? I'm not making this the up. The same day? That is this. Oh. She, gra well, she, <laughs> she graduated in June, and July 1st, 2023, she was one of the first tasters oh of fried God, chicken. That's incredible. <laughs> That's incredible. You know, so it's, these personal stories are always uh, like what keeps us going. And I think, you know, I've said my dad's a veterinarian. He was a big inspiration. I lost him during COVID, right? I know, I remember. So I wish he was here. These are all the things that kind of, yeah. Amazing, Mel. The, the bittersweetness. Well. Yeah. But look, look, great. I'm really happy that you're doing this. You know, there's a long way to go in this industry still. A lot more twists and turns and hurdles, but I think one step at a time. Thanks, Anali. Thank you so much. 
Green Queen in Conversation is a co-production from Green Queen Media and Cheeky Monkey Productions. This episode was produced by Joanna Bowers and hosted by me, Sonali Figueres. Mm-hmm.